Hello, this is John Passmore with the Old Man Sailing podcast. And looking at the running order, I appear to have a somewhat depressing uh, episode for you today. I mean, we've got uh, the rum bottle falling over, we've got disasters with the cooker, and it all begins with what I call an embarrassing confession. So uh, I suppose we'd better get on with it. There is a wonderful moment in the film Notting Hill when Rhys Evans, who plays the wonderful Welsh flatmate, discovers Julia Roberts in the bath. Yes, that Julia Roberts. Well, first he makes a hasty exit from the bathroom and then pokes his head back in, just check in. And finally, wait for it, he clasps his hands and says, Thank you, God. I said the same, although it was over the jib halyard, which, without a proper stopper knot in the end, would have disappeared into the mast. It was bad enough that I was having to replace a perfectly good halyard because I had been obliged to cut the old one. Embarrassing story, see below. But if the end were to disappear into the little slot in the side of the mast, then I would have to climb to the top to reeve a new one. Nothing wrong about climbing the mast. I have an ingenious gadget for that very purpose. It's just that if I make any more work for myself through stupid mistakes, I shall start wondering whether this is such a good idea after all. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. After all, it's 20 years since I last had a boat. More than 25 since I'd done any single-handed sailing in a proper boat. And I suppose that I thought it would just all come back. After all, I managed to sail halfway round the country last year. But time after time, I seem to be doing something stupid. And apart from the extra work of putting it all right, this is getting expensive. Take last night, for instance. Last night, I had to pay a marina fee when I should have been anchored down the river for nothing, only coming alongside in two days' time to take the mainsail to be mended. Well... How's this for stupidity? It started out as routine maintenance, topping up the engine oil. This is something I did countless times with Largo. It's easy enough, you just open the cap on the top of the engine and pour it in. Although, of course, this isn't Largo, is it? Largo had a seawater-cooled book engine. Samsara has a freshwater-cooled nanny, which means there are two filler caps on the top of the engine. So which one do you think I poured the oil into? I mean, there was only a 50-50 chance of getting it wrong. So do you think I got it wrong? Of course I got it wrong. I shouldn't beat myself up about it too much. I do know of a man who poured screenwash into the engine of his Audi R8. Audi were really decent about it. They gave him a new engine under the guarantee. Of course, to begin with, I didn't know I'd done anything wrong. I just couldn't understand why the level on the dipstick hadn't risen. So I added some more oil. And then some more. Until it spilled over the top. It was at this point the penny dropped. Oh no, what have I done? Now the panic sets in and rational thought goes out of the window. The first thing to do is to get the oil out of the cooling system. Fortunately, Being oil, it is floating on the top. 
I find a length of hose, I put one end into the cooling system and suck on the other, I get a mouthful of oil, I spit it out, half a pint pours into the bilges, would have been better to find the time to get a bucket, the oil stops flowing, I try again, this time I get a mouthful of coolant, good, good, that seems to be all the oil out of the system. It is maybe half an hour later, when I have topped up the oil correctly and run the engine, that I begin to think about this some more slowly. I just had a mouthful of engine coolant. I spat it out, but I can still taste it. What is in engine coolant? Antifreeze. Isn't antifreeze supposed to be poisonous? Look it up. Yes, it's poisonous. Well, obviously the first thing to do is to drink two large glasses of water, which of course takes it further down into my system. Then I look up how to make yourself sick. I stick my finger down my throat. It works, but all that comes up is a spoonful of bile. Maybe I should be taking this a bit more seriously. Further research tells me long-term outcomes may include kidney failure and brain damage. Toxicity and death may occur even after drinking a small amount. Struth, this is serious. I began to consider my options. I am anchored on the River Orwell near Ipswich. Ipswich has a large hospital. To get there, I would have to leave the boat somewhere secure. I might be in hospital for days, weeks even. The marina where I was due to take the mainsail on Monday would be the obvious place. But how much would they charge? Hold on a moment. Why am I worrying about money when my life is hanging by a thread? I should get there as soon as possible. I did. In fact, I phoned for a taxi to take me there. The taxi driver knew all about antifreeze. Oh, that's very dangerous. Do you want me to go by the main road or through town? Through town is cheaper, but the main road is faster. OK, we'll go by the main road. At accident and emergency reception, they asked me why I was there. I asked them if they still accepted patients who were only there because they had been incredibly stupid. They told me that if people weren't incredibly stupid, they wouldn't have any patients. They asked me to wait. A screen on the wall said, Waiting time, two hours. How long since I had ingested the poison? Four hours already. Was that the beginning of a headache I could feel? In fact, I sat there for only five minutes before a nurse took me away for cross-examination. And it was a cross-examination. He went away to look it all up. He came back and told me, I think because you swallowed it, you had it in your mouth, and you spat it out and rinsed your mouth, then your membranes cannot have absorbed it. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to admit you. You did the right thing coming in, but I think there really is nothing to worry about. He took my blood pressure and my blood oxygen levels for good measure, but finished by saying, the symptoms would be intoxication, lightheadedness, headache, abdominal pain. Just be aware for the next day or two. So I shouldn't have anything to drink. Probably a bottle of wine would not be a good idea. It is now almost 48 hours since all this happened, and I have been completely teetotal. I have given myself such a fright that I shall remain so 
for another 24 hours. I suppose I should be grateful that I have not killed myself, but all I can think of is the taxi fares and the marina charges. If I keep on doing things like this, the whole project is going to run out of money. And the trouble is that I do still keep doing them. You want to know why I had to buy a new jib halyard? I was trying to get the creases out of the jib and there isn't a winch on that side of the mast so I led it through the block at the base and onto the cockpit winch and jammed it in a riding turn. The luff didn't seem to be getting any tighter. Crank another turn on the winch. It was when I was trying to release the tension that I broke the pad eye for the spinnaker block and I still had to cut the halyard. Imagine if the new one had disappeared inside the mast. But no, this time, without any help from me, things turned out all right. As they say, thank you, God. After two days in an expensive marina, it's good to be out at anchor again. For one thing, we're pointing into the wind. All day it's been blowing a gale with driving rain. Somebody got washed into the sea at Ramsgate and drowned. For me, it just meant I had to stuff the cracks in the companionway with a towel. Except, of course, when Art, the electrician, arrived for his second, or was it third, attempt to find out why the windlass works or not, according to an agenda that it seems to be keeping to itself. I thought I'd fixed it when I discovered a rusty connection, but today Art discovered an isolating switch in the engine space which I knew nothing about. Removing both that and an ancient trip switch and replacing them with a fuse seems to have solved the problem for the moment, but there will have to be another, a fourth visit uh, to fit the new switch. Of course, all this would be unnecessary if only I had any expertise in electrical engineering. But no, I'm marginally less expert in this area than I am with engines. One thing I can do is turn this boat around in a small space. With the wind still blowing 25 knots, I took Samsara out of her marina berth, spun her on a sixpence, and we are now anchored a couple of hundred yards away. The reason for this is that tomorrow is May the 1st, but the forecast is still for nighttime temperatures of only 3 degrees Celsius, and there is only about one-third of a bag of charcoal left, enough to keep me cosy for this evening, but tomorrow I will have to take the bike ashore and pedal five miles to a garage which sells charcoal. <coughs> Captain Calamity appeared every August, regular as clockwork. He would be an old man sailing a wreck of an old boat that he'd picked up for a song, and he would be navigating by road maps, usually an out-of-date AA road map. And, of course, the lifeboat would go and fetch him. It is one of the great benefits of sailing in UK waters that the lifeboats are manned by volunteers funded by charity and free at the point of use no matter how many times you use them. Because, having been towed safely into harbour, Captain Calamity would have a shower in the quayside facilities, a good meal ashore, and then set off again, only to get into difficulties once more and be towed in by the next lifeboat down the coast. 
At about this point, the lifeboat coxswain would advise the old boy that his vessel was really not seaworthy, or he needed some navigation classes, or perhaps the whole enterprise was a terrible mistake. It would be at about this point the newspapers would become involved, and sure enough, at the Daily Mail, I was the recognised Captain Calamity correspondent. I would hasten to Hull or Skegness or wherever and record the next stage of the unfolding disaster because, you see, nobody could stop Captain Calamity. In the UK, you don't need permission to go to sea. You don't have to have passed exams or carry any safety equipment. If you can put up with the shaking heads on the quay and the doleful predictions of the local fishermen, you can go. Whatever the lifeboat coxswain may say. Sometimes at this stage the ancient mariner would succumb to the embarrassment he had brought down on himself. Sometimes he would not. Either way, there was usually a good story in it. Ever since, I have been acutely sensitive to the prospect of getting myself smothered in ridicule. Like, for instance, going aground on the top of the highest tide for the next ten days. Which is what happened today. If you have been keeping up, you will know about the abortive expedition to fetch water from the pub in Kirby Lesokan, trespassing for a pea uh, on Horsey Island, and the Beware Oyster Bed sign, which had blown away. Anyway, yesterday I went round to the marina on the pretext of replacing an empty gas cylinder and filled the water tanks while I was at it. And while I was at it, my fisherman friend David, with his permanently damp dog, phoned to ask whether I could possibly help him investigate a leak in his heat exchanger. It was an awkwardly sighted uh, heat exchanger, right underneath the engine, and he thought I was more nimble than he was. It was arranged that I would go back to Kirby Creek today, which of course is where I must take the big orange mooring boy and not anchor in the middle of the oyster bed, even though David, who has lived there all his life, says there haven't been any oysters in that creek for years, and they only say that because they don't want people anchoring, and they don't want any more moorings either. I could see the orange boy as I felt my way down the channel between Horsey Island and Skipper's Island, the Navionics app on my phone pointing the way. I have great faith in Navionics. The other day I trusted Google Maps to find me the way from Kirby Creek and, and it got me just as lost as Captain Calamity with his AA road map. Last time I came this way I had left Honeypot Island to starboard and there was more water then and the Navionics app seemed to suggest the other way would be better. Well, there were some moorings there too. It made sense. And that was where we came, sliding gently to a halt. First I put the engine in reverse and wound her up to full throttle. No joy. Then I started hanging off the shrouds, hoping to heal the boat and reduce the draft. Nope. Next I waited a bit for the hope that the tide might rise further. But after 15 minutes it was clear that desperate measures were called for. If you don't take desperate measures when you have the chance, you'll wish you had when it's too late. I broke out the kedge anchor, inflated the dinghy, added 50 metres of warp, 
to the twenty on it already, and rode the lot across to the other side of the creek. Then, with the engine flat out astern and the warp on the sheet winch, I stirred up a lot of muddy water and went precisely nowhere. The tide was still flooding, but Samsara seemed to be welded to the bottom. The only saving grace was that the creek was utterly deserted. My ignominity was as yet a secret. Of course, it wouldn't be a secret if I was here for ten days. They would put up grandstands and sell tickets as the boat dried out downhill and filled with mud and water as the tide rose and she stayed on the bottom. From time to time I switched off the engine and waited. Eventually I transferred the anchor warp from the stern to the bow and got it on the electric anchor windlass. There was a moment of euphoria when the boat began to turn. But would she go forward? No, she would not. Not by so much as a blade of grass in the transit across the Saltings. I began to think of calling for help. But what did I expect? Already I had a warp that was bar taut. No launch was going to be able to do better than that. By this time, high tide was ten minutes away, and I was beginning to consider what would happen if I just left her there for the winter. At this stage I hadn't checked the almanac, and somehow I had it fixed in my head that this was the highest tide until the next spring equinox. Without any great hopes of a different result, I tried more of the same, revving the engine, winding the anchor back through the mud. I put the helm hard over to line up with the anchor, and with the prop wash flowing over the rudder, Samsara heeled obediently to starboard, but went nowhere. I switched tacks and put her over hard to port. Was that a movement? There was definitely a rocking motion. Agonizingly slowly, we began to wriggle through the mud. We could almost hear the sucking noises as the creek bed released its grip on the keel. Quickly, before anything else could go wrong, I recovered the fifty metres of warp and tied a fender to the remaining twenty metres. I can go back tomorrow and get it. We were free. Indeed, I am writing this anchor defiantly in six metres in the middle of the non-existent oyster bed and thinking that there was, in fact, one other weapon in my armoury. I could have attached the spinnaker halyard to the anchor warp and heeled the boat to thirty degrees, dragging her off that way. Would the higher angle have pulled the anchor out of the mud? Not with that length of warp, surely. Maybe that will be one for next time, if there is a next time. Don't worry, Sod's Law demands it. I just took a look at my YouTube channel to see how many views I've had on the little video that I recorded on the way down to the Azores talking about good health and the supplement which keeps me in good health. It has had 15,000 views. It's only about 10-12 minutes long. You can find it on the Good Health page at oldmansailing.com. Do have a look. Anchor Day
More embarrassment. I succeeded in wrapping my anchor chain around a mooring buoy. I made what I now realize was a half-hearted attempt to untangle it, and now I'm going to do the job properly. Much of the reason for this is because the alternatives are not very attractive. I know I spent much of the last two days going over them again and again. As I said at the time, it looked as though there was no alternative but to get a diver down. Actually, I am a diver. That is to say that about five years ago, before a holiday in Egypt, I took an open water diving course. However, I don't have any equipment of my own and, almost certainly, I have forgotten everything I learned. But I do remember the name of the diving school. Dive Line in Ipswich. I rang them. The man who answered the phone said immediately, Oh, you'll want a commercial diver. I know all about commercial divers. We're right on top of Felixstowe docks here. Commercial divers are used to dealing with shipping companies registered in Nassau. Their scale of charges starts at £1,600 and goes up from there. Plus VAT, of course. I was hoping Diveline might know of an amateur who would do it more cheaply. I was advised to ring back in the morning and speak to Jeff. Jeff put me on to Paul. Now, Paul was really quite helpful. Yes, of course he could do it. He'd need to do it with Jeff, though, because they'd need a boat. Now, I was the one with the negative attitude. I've got a dinghy, but it's only tiny. Also, how were we going to get you out of the water? My collapsible swimming ladder would never take the weight of a diver with all his kit. Or we can get the kit off in the water if we need to. And if needs be, we can swim ashore. And all for the price of a drink. A pretty expensive one, as drinks go, but very cheap compared to the commercial outfit. However, both Paul and Jeff are away for the next ten days. But already things were looking a good deal brighter, and today brighter still. The strong winds have died away, and the river is like a mill pond. Also, I have a plan. At the moment, the anchor and all the chain is on the riverbed. The bitter end is attached to a 12-metre line and to a buoy. What I propose to do is to hoist the end of the chain up to the surface and drag it from the stern twice clockwise around the mooring buoy. If that doesn't work, I shall drag it four times anti-clockwise, undoing the two turns I've just put on and undoing any others. On Tuesday, trying this from the bow, I couldn't get any distance from the buoy. If I find that today I can, then I am making progress. Of course, what I am hoping is that I will find myself getting further and further away from the buoy. This will mean the plan is working, and ultimately I will be off in a completely different direction, which means I've done it. Then all I will need is to do is to transfer the line to the bow and haul it in. What I'm really looking forward to is to ringing both Paul and Jeff and thanking them for their offer, but saying that I shall be off back to the Deben tomorrow and ready to go in earnest next week. Readers wondering why I'm taking the time to write this when I could be getting on with the job should consider the theory that we get what we think about, or as I like to put it, you create your reality by the power of your thinking.
I'm now full of positive attitude. Let's go do it. Well, so much for positive thinking. I spent the morning motoring round and round in circles trying to unwind the anchor chain from the mooring buoy and I have a horrible suspicion that I've just made it worse. So there seemed to be nothing to do but wait for my friendly diver to go down. At least he was going to be cheaper than his commercial colleague. But I suppose I should find out how much it would cost simply to replace everything. Ah, no good. Getting on for a thousand pounds. This was when the time came to ring the boatyard and tell them what I'd done to their mooring. I was not looking forward to it. But the man who rang me back was full of sympathy. No mention, you idiot, what do you think you're playing at? Instead he just said, well, if a diver can't do it, don't worry, I can always lift the mooring chain with my barge and we could sort it out that way. I hadn't thought of that. After all, what if I paid for the diver and he couldn't do anything? How much would it cost to use the barge? Oh, I suppose about a hundred pounds. Yes, please. He can do it next week, too. Maybe things aren't looking so black, after all. Getting back to the car after painting the beach hut in Southworld, a message. I have my anchor back. Gus at Harry King's boatyard Pinmill had retrieved it and apparently it is sitting on the foredeck. Washed, no less. So I'm off tomorrow. The wind should be favourable from Saturday afternoon and I have worked out that if I leave after lunch and keep moving I'll be able to carry the tide for 18 hours which should put me well on my way along the south coast towards Chichester on Sunday night. There are one or two little jobs to do first, so it's just as well that I have to wait for the wind. But I can do those anchored in Walton backwaters, staying well away from the boys. Just a quick word to remind you that if you're looking for an income to keep you afloat while you're cruising, then I have the very thing. Do take a look at oldmansailing.com forward slash money. The Sunk Traffic Separation Scheme and Other Adventures It was a great idea. I even sent the family WhatsApp group a message saying I would set out at dawn the next day instead of starting the voyage with a rainy night. Well, I didn't have a drop of rain. The plan was to sail from Walton on the east coast to Chichester on the south coast, a distance of some 150 miles, which I reckoned to do in not much more than 24 hours, especially if I could catch the tide all the way across the Thames estuary, like I did last year, coming up. In the event, it took me 58 hours, which is nearly two and a half days. Mind you, it was great. I loved every minute of it. The first excitement was experimenting with Samsara's downwind rig. This is somewhat innovative and was contrived by her fastidious previous owner who made such success of refitting her cabin. Since downwind to him meant the trade winds, he dispensed with the silly contraptions like spinnakers and wrote a careful explanation of how to rig the staysail on the inner forestay with the sheet led through a snatch black on the end of the boom hauled forward with a preventer, 
and the main could then be furled. After that, with the furling tube on the end of the spinnaker boom, the two headsails could be adjusted without leaving the cockpit. That may be so, and I'm sure very useful when shortening sail as a rain squall creeps up on you in the middle of a jet black night on the way to Antigua. However, to arrive at this happy position requires setting up all those control lines. Don't worry, the fastidious owner had drawn them out and left a copy in the file. It looks like a piece of modern art. There seemed to be a lot of string involved. And don't forget the footnote about up all's not shown. I studied this diagram and I looked at a lot of YouTube videos and finally decided that if the staysail was going on the end of the main boom, had to be in the main boom because the diagram shows the topping lift is used as an uphaul, then why did I need both a spinnaker pole and a whisker pole? Yes, I had both cluttering up the foredeck, and with a bit of measuring, as best as I could do with the boat out of the water, I decided that the spinnaker pole was left over from the days when the boat carried a spinnaker, and, in fact, the whisker pole was what was used for this particular rig. So the spinnaker whirl went into the shed at home. And now I had a chance to try the rig on the way along the suggested yacht track out of the approaches to Felixstowe, the first thing I learned was that because the main boom cannot be brought forward of the shrouds, if there is any wind shift, then the whole contraption has to be dismantled and set up again on the other side. It cannot be jibed. I did this. I may get better with practice, but just now it represents a serious flaw. What it needs is for both headsails to be on their own booms, whisker pole for the staysail and the longer spinnaker pole for the furling headsail. In other words, what I need is a spinnaker pole on the foredeck, not in the shed. Never mind, the wind gave up in exasperation. From the afternoon into the evening progress became more and more sporadic until at one point I was reduced to starting the engine to avoid a cargo ship which seemed intent on stalking me through the sunk traffic separation scheme. I've just realised how odd that sounds. In the end, just when I should have been looking up the pilotage notes for entering Chichester, I found a quiet spot down tide of the Thanet wind farm and dropped all sail to get some serious sleep. In short snatches, of course. It wasn't until four in the morning that I poked my head out of the hatch to look around and felt the faintest stirrings of a breeze. That was enough. Stumbling around in the pitch-black night with a head torch, I set about rigging the temporary forestay for the Genoa, and some time later we were on our way at a sedate two knots. What I didn't appreciate at the time was that this was going to turn into my best day's sailing with this boat. The wind built and built as if trying to get back into my good books after yesterday. The Genoa went below with a glow of pride for a job well done, and we continued south under all plain sail with 6.5 knots on the log, which I have learned is no more than respectable for Samsara. Of course, I had no idea that this was just the beginning. By the time we were picking our way through the ferries off Dover, the average was well over seven knots with bursts up to eight, and the GPS showing the speed over the ground at 9.5. Best of all, the shape of arrival makes this 
a most rewarding experience. It makes the most of her speed. That big, purposeful bow shoulders the seas out of the way in a manner of a prop forward, making for the bar after winning the league. The result is a great creaming bow wave and a, a wake that seems to stretch all the way to the horizon. Owners of modern boats will sniff at this, particularly those with multi-hulls. Their argument is, do you want to make a lot of waves or do you want to go fast? Because there is no doubt, for a boat to go fast, she needs to cause as little disturbance as possible to the sea. But where's the fun in that? So we went belting along the south coast, Dover, Hastings, Brighton, and pretty soon I was looking up the pilotage's notes for Chichester. It wasn't as simple as I remembered. In fact, you have to have a four-hour window around high water to get in at all. Also, it turned out that we weren't going so fast anymore, and dusk was approaching, and with it that characteristic calm. The self-steering unable to cope, the inadvertent tax, the sails slatting. It costs seventy pounds to fill Samsara's diesel tank, and I don't motor anywhere I don't have to. Down came the sails again, and somewhere off Selsey Bill I sat down to the other half of the Putinesca sauce, which had been such a success with spaghetti off Thanet. Later, as the sun came up and with it the breeze, we set off with a certain sense of resignation for that four-hour window into Chichester. Obviously, it's going to take me some time to get flexible. Maybe it comes from a lifetime of fitting sailing into a working life, having to get the boat back on a mooring in time to return to the office tomorrow morning. But that doesn't apply anymore. The reason for Chichester was because I needed to take the life raft to be serviced in Southampton, and you can anchor for nothing in Chichester Harbour. So, when I picked up a mobile signal and rang Ocean Safety to book it in sometime over the next three weeks, I'd be around the silent for that long, what with Hugo, my 15-year-old joining me and having to go home to take our turn at hosting the wine club. You want it done in the next three weeks, said the voice on the other end. Not at all the same one which had suggested airily, oh, bring it in and we'll do it while you wait. Eventually, we managed to agree on an appointment in early June. But foolishly, it was only at this stage that I asked how much it would cost. £450? Although I'm pleased to say that a lifetime of listening to people voicing the preposterous allowed me to keep the exclamation mark out of my reply. The budget just does not allow for routine payments of £450, and besides, the service isn't due until July. And anyway, who keeps their certificate up to date if they aren't required to by law? Charter companies. Or if they're about to be scrutinised for a race. Besides, I'm old enough to remember setting out across the North Sea, five of us in a wooden folk boat, knowing that if we were to sink, the first resort was a very serious bilge pump father had installed, and the second was a tiny plywood dinghy lashed to the coach roof. We would have lasted five minutes in a fourth three. So the life raft is not going to be serviced, and besides, the wind and tide seemed determined to keep me away from Chichester. I put the helm down and headed west into the Solent. 
periodically looking up anchorages protected from the northeast. So that's why it wasn't until three o'clock in the afternoon that I dropped the hook off Needsall Point on the River Bewley. I've seen boats anchored here before, and rather than go up to the teeming metropolis of Buckler's Hard, although I'm a bit startled to read that the owners of this private river, presumably the estate of the late Lord Montague, reserved the right to come and charge me ten pounds. I just hope they don't read this. That would make me feel as foolish as the drug dealer who advertised his wares on Facebook without realising he had a friend who was a policeman. Anyway, I'm off tomorrow for Pool, where Pool Town Key Boathaven will charge me only three pounds if I don't stop for more than four hours while I pick up some fresh supplies, fill the water tanks and buy a new joker valve for the loo before Hugo arrives. It's taken me this long to find the seacock by feel. If I inflict the same on him, he'll never want to come back. Silence The mother of all brooches played out to the accompaniment of Maurice Chevalier singing Saint-Evan for Little Girls. It happened somewhere off the Grand Banks during the 1988 single-handed transatlantic race. I was having a clear-out recently and found the article I wrote for Yachting World. That was in the days when you cut two enormous holes in the cockpit and plumbed in a pair of waterproof speakers. Then there was the Motorola radio cassette player and, of course, the box of cassettes. How do you choose 30 tapes to take with you across the Atlantic? At least with Desert Island discs it's not real. If you can't live with just eight records you can always listen to the rest when you get home. Now we have Spotify with every piece of music ever recorded and a tiny waterproof speaker which doesn't need any wires at all and demonstrates the fact by flying from one side of the cockpit to the other where it bounces, still happily churning out Willie Nelson. Although it was Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone was on when we emerged from the Casquettes traffic separation scheme, the Jenny drawing nicely in the light northeasterly. If the GPS had calculated correctly, we should reach Torquay by dusk. Frankly, I didn't care if we did or we didn't. I could stay out here forever. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, more pleasing than doing five knots over a flat sea with the boat not even rocking. It's as if there's no resistance and the momentum just builds and builds until the wind and the sails and the hull and the water reach a sort of equilibrium, which will continue forever, unless, that is, one component falls out of the balance. In fact, it was thinking this as I watched the white water zipping past the cockpit that I realised there was one thing missing. The sound. The sound of rushing water. Not the crash and surge of a boat charging over breaking waves, but the smooth, subdued hiss as she slips along, as if there's no effort in it at all. Except I couldn't hear the hiss. Just Bob Dylan. I turned him off. And that was the beginning of a magical twelve hours when the middle of the English Channel might have been the Atlantic's central abyssal plain or some lost, unvisited corner of the Greenland Strait, 
because gradually the light northeasterly died away. The wind dropped off, and with it all sound, until Samsara was moving apparently without any propulsion at all, at a knot and a half. The sails hung in their aerofoil shapes, apparently with no air to hold them there. It was like perpetual motion, except, of course, there is no such thing, and sure enough, the knot and a half dropped to one knot, and then half a knot, and eventually the Aries Vainkir could no longer cope, and we turned in a dignified circle and stopped. It was now dusk, when I should have been arriving in Torquay, but instead I furled the sails and allowed the boat to drift with the tide. Taking the good glass from its locker in the galley and a cold beer from the bilges, I sat in the cockpit and listened to the silence. And this was real silence, the kind that if you concentrate very hard, you can hear a sound in your ears, which is really the nerve endings straining to do their best, but giving up and reporting nothing received. The AIS was receiving okay. The plots showed that in fact, there was no other human activity within seven miles as the little green triangles followed each other in an orderly queue down the westbound lane. It was only later, poking my head up through the hatch in the middle of frying onions, that I realised this time there was a sound, a deep, almost imperceptible throb. The engine of a big ship, the sound which reverberating out of a fog bank used to fill me with such terror. Now the AIS showed me exactly where he was, even that he was the Maersk Santosa, 319 metres overall and carrying dangerous goods, harmful substances or marine pollutants, category B, and heading for Newark at 23.5 knots. His RAIM, I can report, was not in use but I don't know whether it is helpful or not. What I do know is that on an evening like this, you can hear a ship's engine at a range of five miles. I listened to him until the sound faded to nothing. Of course, real life reasserted itself eventually. At about three in the morning, there appeared to be a bit of a breeze but I didn't trust it until it had put in some effort and showed that it could still be blowing at four o'clock. So I am writing this in Meadfoot Bay outside Torquay. You don't need to pay Torquay harbour dues until tomorrow. And the little rubber speaker is playing Humphrey Littleton's Bad Penny Blues. The good glass is out again. And then there's the other half of last night's Putanesca sauce. In fact, under the influence of proper jazz and a very small bottle of wine, which is even now reaching cabin temperature, the heater going gently because May is not really summer, I might even get out the clarinet and play the sundown. After all, I'm the only one here. And thank you for listening to the Old Man Sailing podcast. More next time. And meanwhile, do head over to the blog at oldmansailing.com.